Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joseph Weisenthal, Managing Editor at Bloomberg Markets. Tracy Alloway, who co-hosts with me, is off traveling the world today. She'll be back next week. So I am all alone, but I was really excited about this episode because, as you may or may not know, it's about to be Kentucky Derby Day. And I think on a, when the Kentucky Derby Day rolls along, maybe the day of the race or the day before the race, people suddenly try to cram and learn a bunch about horses. But we're going to get ahead of that because today we have David Papadopoulos, who is a managing editor here at Bloomberg. And most importantly, this week, he is an expert on all things horses, horse racing, horse gambling, horse breeding. And we're going to talk to him about horses, obviously, and everything you need to know to get ready for this weekend's derby and the business of betting on horses and breeding horses. And so rather than just cramming Saturday morning, you're going to listen to this podcast. You're going to know a lot more than everyone else at your Kentucky Derby party. Thanks, David, for joining us. Thank you, Joe. And basically what you just said, in other words, is that rather than losing your money and having no idea uh, how yeah. you lost it, you were going to lose it. At least you'll have, you know, you'll have given it some thought and then go on to lose your money. At least you'll learn something and maybe you'll have a little more uh, enjoyable time watching the uh, race. So I've never won money on horses. I've placed a lot of bets. Not a lot, but I've been to races, I bet on the Derby, and I'm terrible at it. So are we going to fix that this week? We are certainly going to try. I mean, the Derby is a tough race. If you're just going to bet once a year and you bet the Derby, it's a tough race. There are 20 horses on the track. That's more than double the size of a typical field and a typical race. Very chaotic. Uh, and just obviously, just given the, the sheer number of the horses out there, you know, if you're betting on one or two horses, uh, it could be very tough. And, you know, the way things tend to unfold in these races, horses that often seem very logical, not only may they not win, you could all of a sudden, you could see they could come in dead last. That's a, that's a f- common occurrence with a race like this? Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I was just looking at, again, just to, to refresh my memory, you know, we had a period of 20 years, for instance, 1980 to 1999, the favorite in the Kentucky Derby did not win a single one of those races. Um, and in some cases, I'm looking here, they finished 12th, 16th, 10th, 8th. One of them did not finish 11th, 20th. So, you know, it, it's just a chaotic uh, race. How could, many horses are normally in a race? You mentioned there are 20. In I would say, day. you know, typical size varies, but, you know, anywhere you could have fields as small as five or six or in even some cases four. A typical, typical field would be eight or 10. Mm-hmm. 12 would kind of be a lot. So 20, so 20, it, 20 is a madhouse. There's only one time in America 
in horse racing where there are 20 horses on the track for a race, and it's the Kentucky Derby. Wow. And the reason for that is because every owner, every horse race, uh, racehorse owner in America is dying to say, I had a horse in the Kentucky Derby. So Churchill Downs really goes out of its way to try to accommodate and try to let as many owners bring their horses to the race as possible, uh, and you get this stampede of horses. Well, um, before we get into talk about this weekend's Derby and the Derby in general, I want to talk really briefly about this obsession that I had a few years ago related to horses. And it wasn't related to horse betting, but it was something called pin hooking, which I read about and then I got obsessed with. And that's this idea of buying horses at auction and flipping them, selling them horses as speculations. Uh, I even thought, you know, there was that show Flip This House. I thought there would be a really great show Flip This Horse. People who went out to these auctions and bought one-year-old horses or young horses and then tried to sell them. Eventually, I realized it it wasn't my world. I wasn't living in Kentucky. I didn't have any particular reason to be buying horses at auction. But it really fascinated me. And while you're here, I wanted to ask you about this world of pin hooking. Because there are different ways to speculate on horses. One is gambling. But the other way is some people buy and sell horses like commodities. Yeah, no, pin hooking is indeed. It's a fascinating segment of the market. About a decade ago, I, I once did a feature story on, on the market. What it basically comes down to is guys uh, who will buy yearlings. Um, That's a one-year-old horse. So it's a one-year-old horse, a yearling, and they will flip them uh, as two-year-olds. Uh, and it's not even, a full year doesn't even transpire from the time they purchase them and the time that they flip them. Really, it's about six months. Um, it, it It's a very volatile market. You can have some huge home runs. You know, sometimes these guys will buy yearlings for 200000 and manage to flip them for $1.6 and have some huge score. But then they'll have any number of busts along the way, horses that get eaten injured in that six-month period and, and never make it to the track at all. you know. But what they're basically looking to do is um, they are looking, you know, in the yearling sales, when horses are one-year-old, um, when you go and buy those horses at auction, you don't actually see them running. You simply see them on a shank, standing, or walking. So, you know, what a pin hooker is looking to do is he's looking to gauge the horse's balance, athletic ability. You know, if you're going to flip a two-year-old, you know, a two-year-old is a very young horse. It's like a young teenager. They have to be precocious. They have to be fast and they have to be racy. So at at one-year-old, they've never really raced. They've never raced before. They've absolutely never raced before. And when they're sold as two-year-olds, they still haven't raced in proper races. But at that point, they are being trained Mm. on the track and all the prospective buyers before they bid on the horses will watch them run on the racetrack. So again, what what but a they've pin- never run when they're one, not even like a practice. You just no, they're, I'm, I'm, oh, they're certainly running in the oh. fields. You know, in the breeders' fields, they're running the around, not on the track. And when you go to these these auctions, these yearling auctions, all they'll let you do is they'll let them they'll they'll let you see them standing while while a handler's holding the shank. They let them see them stand and walk. So. Are the people who participate in this, these pin hookers, they mu- they have to have been around for a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, you because if you're going to try to f- see that a horse has a swagger at just one year old and they haven't run oh, at yeah. all, you need to be able to just have some oh, yeah. intuition that you can't explain. I mean, the, the guy I spent a lot of time with back then, uh, Buzz Chase, um, who just had developed a terrific eye over 
a 60-year period, right? His entire life was around horses, and he just developed that eye, and he could see things that other buyers couldn't see. So he would buy them, and being able to project six months out, you know, what that horse would look like. And again, you know, it's not an exact science. These guys get any of them wrong, or, you know, horses get injured. They're very fragile animals. Um, But, but, you know, the, the model is... Joe, you need to hit a big home run. You need something to flip something at a really big price, and that'll pay for a lot of the strikeouts. It reminds me kind of like venture capital investing in terms of you invest in these seedlings or seed rounds, and most of them don't work out. And then every once in a while, you invest in an Uber or an Airbnb, hopefully, and you make up for all the losses. And at that early stage, the only thing you really have to go on is intuition and pattern recognition. That's right. That's right. And you know, bringing it back to the Derby, one of the things that really allowed the pin hooking market to take off was um, Bob Baffert, la- trainer of, la- of, of American Pharaoh, last year's Triple Crown winner, and trainer this year of More Spirit. He's the guy that in a lot of ways got the pin hooking market going. How? Well, he'd picked a horse named Silver Charm in 1996. He plucked Silver Charm out of a two-year-old sale, and Silver Charm the next year would go on to win the Kentucky Derby. So that was the first moment when Mm. buyers said, hey, you know what? In these two-year-old sales, you can really find talent, talent that's even capable of winning the Derby. And so as more and more buyers went to the two-year-old sales to buy, it created a bigger market for pinhookers to sell into. He has a pinhook in this year's Derby? And he does. And, And Baffert's got a pinhook he was not the pin hooker. He was the buyer. He purchased. Uh, the he pin purchased hook. At, at the two-year-old sale for, I believe, six hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. Very nice horse. More spirit is his name, and he's the lone pin hook in this year's uh, in this year's Derby. But. Um, after Silver Charm won in 97, then Monarcos, who was another pin hook, or if he wasn't a pin hook, he was at the very least, he was purchased in a two-year-old sale. Those kind of, especially those two back-to-back mm. really allowed the thing to take off. And the th- interesting thing about Baffert as a buyer, and he specifically bought this horse, More Spirit, for these clients, Baffert's not a big guy about pedigree. Like, he's not going to spend hours mm. and hours contemplating pedigree. He's another guy who's got a great eye. So he just sees just, the horse is the horse. He's just looking for athletes. Interesting. Now, of course, you want some pedigree because if you simply buy an athlete that goes on to do great things if the horse has got no pedigree but did great things on the track he's not going to be very attractive as a stallion or a stud you're not going to be able to sell him as a stallion or really? a stud. so even like a horse that had a great track record people still want to see i guess that it wasn't a fluke in the that's lineage. correct so if a horse like california chrome you remember may remember from a couple of years ago almost won the triple crown he came from essentially a bad family. He basically could have come from the Papadopoulos family. I think his father was old Yeller. I don't remember who his mother was. But so even though he won the Derby, he won the Preakness, he won all these races, breeders weren't knocking down his door to, to have him come in and, you know, and, and make him a big stallion offer and pay them countless millions. The reason why, Joe, is yes, breeders will assume that in a case like that, he's just a freak athlete huh. in a bad family. All right, let's uh, let's we're going to turn our attention to the Kentucky Derby, but first let's take a quick break for our sponsor. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at cit.com. Put knowledge to work. All right, David, let's talk about the Derby. But let's talk about 
let's say someone doesn't know anything about horse betting. As I said in the intro, maybe they pay attention to horses one day a year. How do you start to look for a good bet, to a good horse to bet on, or a good wager? What's the framework? Well, to take, yeah, to take a half step back, I would say the first thing that you know most gamblers do, and, and even people who don't have a great sense that they should really be looking for value, not simply looking to identify the horse with the best chance to win, but looking for value, I think they'll typically look out a handful of things. Obviously, simply whether this horse is winning or losing recently mm-hmm. in his most recent races. What kind of speed figures the horse is producing? Nobody looks pretty much at raw times. Um, most, obviously, tracks are dirt surfaces. They're very affected day-to-day, hour-to-hour by rain, wind, and everything. So you, you can't look at raw times. There are any number of groups. So that's why we don't hear about like the equivalent of the 100-meter world record because no, you there's don't. just too much variation. That's correct. It, it is true that Secretariat, arguably the greatest thoroughbred in America of all time, to this day has the record in the Kentucky Derby and the record in the Preakness and the record in the Belmont. All those things are true, <laughs> raw times. But generally speaking, you know, raw times are, are, are kind of skewed. So you say a speed figure. So speed figures. There, there are a handful of them. There's uh, Andy Byer, an old Harvard guy. He's got the Byer speed figures. And then there's there's the Ragazin sheets. And there and there's the Brisnet. And there and how are those other. derived? Well, those are basically, they take the raw times, mm-hmm. but then they figure out how... F- they have their own formulas for how fast or slow the track is playing on that particular day. In other words, it's con- it's conceivable that on Tuesday, if a horse does a mile, runs a mile and an eighth in a minute forty-seven, and then three days later another horse does that same mile and an eighth in a minute fifty, it's conceivable that the mile, the minute fifty, is actually a better figure, is a faster time than a minute forty-seven, depending on how the track's playing. So they'll they'll take all those things into consideration. And as a uh amateur gambler when i want to see a horse's speed figure what where do i look and what is a good number is it lower well, numbers higher numbers what right so everyone's got their own system the mo the, the the most common sort of the 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 gold standard i guess in the industry uh are the buyer speed figures which okay. you'd find in the daily racing form and they're in big bold type they're the basically the only number in the racing form it's in bold type the higher the better okay. uh you're looking in the derby typically people is it want, a scale like one to 100 what's there's the, no you know there's no set scale but you know i think for instance they they went and they did a they back autopsied for instance secretariat's belmont yeah <laughs> in 73 and i think he got 138 i okay. think 138 is basically the highest you'll ever see. You know, maidens, horses that have never run in their lives before, you know, may do get figures as low as 30 or 40. Okay. You know, uh, you know, typically derby winners before they run in the derby will have done something in the 100 range, 100 okay. plus. Um, so, so anyway, so your typical gambler, he looks at win-loss record. He looks at speed figures. He probably looks at the competition the horse has been facing recently to give him a sense, all right, has he been racing against really good horses or weaker horses? And then we'll just, you know, most handicappers will will put most emphasis on the horse's most recent races. You know, um, recency matters much more than whether a horse was doing great things two years ago. And that's Mm -hmm. the way, you know, generally speaking, your average gambler would approach it. And those are all important initial steps. 
you know, I think though, if you're really trying to find value, and yeah, I was just gonna say, if these buyer speed figures are in bright bold, that's correct. You're not getting any edge by looking. That's at that. correct, Joe. To the point, to the extent that you know, honestly, in my mind, when I've really made up my mind that I just like a horse visually, because I will break these horses down on film and I will watch them race after race, and I will watch. I may watch certain portions of the race multiple times. When I've decided I really like a horse, I like the way he travels. I like the way he 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 takes the jockey forward when that race is over i'm actually hoping he gets a low buyer figure because a big buyer number is going to going to attract a lot of attention and it's going to attract a lot of money but if he gets a weaker figure that's going to sort of scare people off scare other gamblers off i may still believe in the horse i think that's the point where you say you're watching horses on film that most people should realize they don't stand a chance (laughs) i mean like like there are people out there watching film of these horses that means that the one day a year gambler really, really doesn't, they don't have a prayer. All right, let's uh, take it a bit further. So everyone sees those same buyer speed ratings. You go as far, and I imagine others watch film to like really size up the horses. Right. You said um, you had an epiphany at some point in your career to take your betting to the next level. Um I d- what what was that epiphany? I did, Joe. It was, it was probably about a decade ago, and I was uh, I I was kind of playing hooky from work. I think I pr- I think I properly took it as a vacation day. I will have to go back and check it. <laughs> and I went to Were Sir- you at Bloomberg at the time. I was okay, so it's all in the database. <laughs> it's all it. in the database. We can go back and check it. Uh, and I went up to Saratoga with my father and a buddy of his, and I was kind of trying to handicap on the fly like most people do right. and and doing the things that I I'd walked you through earlier looking at you know win wins and losses looking at speed figures and and I was trying to do this for race after race 10 races on the day and throughout the day if I zigged they zagged I just had it wrong all day I went over 10 on the day and I and I dropped every penny I bet and I remember walking out of there and, and my father's buddy was giving me a hard time he was kind of kind of laughing at me or whatever. And I remember just walking out of there saying, you know, this thing about trying to chase each and every race and trying to handicap on the fly, this is for the birds. There's no way, no how you can truly find any kind of value doing this. I need to take a much more patient approach. I might really pick my spots. And when I'm going to bet, really make sure that I believe I'm, I have an information advantage over everybody else. So now when I go to the track on a given day, there are 10, 12 races. I may bet one, two, three, zero, depending on what I see. And so, you know. It takes a lot of discipline. Because take- people want to, I mean, even if you establish that, okay, you really want to pick your spots, figure out where you have an edge. People, it's That's hard right. to do that when there's races. It's, and it's, it's, it's human nature, and especially when you get down. So let's say I only plan on betting race six on a given day, and I bet whatever, $50, $100, whatever it is. And, and I lose it. Instinct is to sort of immediately start looking through the racing form and say, all right, how am I going to win that back in the seventh race? So as a disciplined gambler, I try to just walk away and not do that. Because at that point, then you're sort of chasing, you're chasing, uh, you're you're throwing, you're throwing good money. You're throwing, exactly. You're throwing good money after bad. But so the the, the kind of ways you can find value, in my case, I watch a lot of film. you know, film can tell you. Quick question: Where do you get that? Is that online everywhere? There, there are multiple places where you can get that online. Okay. Um, and and they're great. You can get multiple shots. You can get the pan shot that everyone's traditionally used to mm-hmm. seeing. You can get the head-on shot, which is great, which gives you a lot of, you know, a lot of different uh, insight. Um, so you can do film work. Uh, you know, to gain value, you can um, you can 
subscribe to Clocker Reports, guys who are watching these horses train each and every morning and they can watch their evolution and report to you Hmm. on their evolution. And it's the kind of thing, yes, it's, it's accessible to other people, but folks tend not to spend the money for it. And it can be very insightful because these are, after all, agricultural products, right? They're horses, right? right? They go good and bad. And so it's very important to know how they're doing day to day, week to week. Um, You know, there are also, um, if you were to go to the paddock before the race, I mean, I'm a big believer in being in the paddock before the race and watching those horses. And over the course of years and years, I've learned and read about you know you know what when a horse is giving signs that the horse is physically really ready to roll and when he's not so ready to roll and that's just kind of going back to the pin hooking something that you just learn to watch the patterns over the years and there's no shortcut on that yeah you you do and also i mean in my case you know initially started i probably picked up a handful of books on the subject written by horsemen not not by uh not by journalists like myself but yeah i mean there are certain telltale signs that become pretty obvious to you like you know if you ever see in 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 paintings classical paintings you know a horse in a painting you know they always get that really bowed arched neck Mm. And if you ever see a horse that's really bowing its neck, arch neck, that is, you know, what we call like a, in a sort of a war horse kind of pose. That is a very proud, very, uh, a horse that's feeling full of himself. That's usually a pretty good tip off. Something we were talking about before that you, uh, uh, ba- sort of based on being in the paddock, you told me something about how smart money is early in the betting. What does that that's mean? That's right. Yeah. Smart money is often early and, and it's a great thing to watch. Not so much on Derby Day. It's probably a little bit harder on Derby Day because so much money is pouring in. But, you know, typically when a trainer, an owner, the grooms, everybody involved with the horse loves the way their horse is, is doing. They love the way he's, he's suddenly back eating well and he's training great and his coat looks terrific and they love their horse this day and they want to bet on him in the paramutual windows, which they're allowed to, which is legal, they will typically do that early on in the day uh, because when it comes time to saddle the horse and for him to run, they're busy. They, they can't be going up to well, the it's, it's, it's They typically, or at least traditionally, have always got that done early. So when, when, when a race is about, you know, when the fifth race has ended and now we're going to the sixth race and there's 25 minutes of the sixth race, that first flash of odds you see on the board is, is often very telling. If a horse out of the blue that no one expected to be the favorite starts off at two to one, uh, and you can take a look at the wind pools. You always want to look at the wind pools. Is there really a lot of money in that wind pool or is mm. it just a little money? And if you see that a horse that no one expected is starting off at two to one and there's a lot of money in the wind pool, it's a pretty good tip off that the barn likes their horse. The insiders, essentially. The insiders, legal inside, you know, inside information they have. Um, again, they're just privy to things that we would not be. Right. Yes, the clocker reports can give you a bit of an inclination of that, for sure. Yes, what you see in the paddock can tell you that a little bit as well. But they ultimately know this horse in a way that we just wouldn't. So, you know, it's always a great sign when you see a horse out of the blue like that. He starts off at two to one because the barn itself really pounded him. And then he drifts two to one, three to one, five to one, eight eight to one that eight to one when the horse when the race goes off that's the odd those are the odds you get all right let's talk quickly about this specific race which is coming up on saturday so obviously between now and then no one is going to gain the years of experience that you have checking out these horses in the barn and so forth most people are just going to be coming at it fresh but give us uh your take on this upcoming race and 
some insight that could help the one day a year gambler do a little better than he might have done, he or she might have done in pre than in previous years. Yeah. So a, a couple of things on that. I mean, one thing I would say is that the Derby is traditionally a somewhat chaotic event. Right. So whereas if you were to look at the ROI over a, an extended period of time on the the long sh- on long shots mm-hmm. in races non Kentucky Derby races just normal races betting long shots 30 to 1 40 to 1 100 to 1 is That's typically for a terrible bet right decades ago my father ran a very uh, significant study on this and I, about a decade ago I ran the data as well the returns are just abysmal because they're overpriced because everybody wants to bet just, it's the, there's always some pool of money out there that's just going to bet the long shot because it looks like it, it looks cheap exactly it's the dollar in a dream kind right. of thing and so it looks cheap at 80 to one but Joe you know what at 81 actually is not be cheap 200 to one Perhaps. But in the Derby, it turns out, given the fact that there are three key elements that make it a chaotic race, you know, betting long shots has been pretty good over the past 20 years. Interesting. And so the three elements are, A, the size of the crowd, 150,000 drunk Kentuckians and other Americans creating a very boisterous, unnerving environment for horses, for animals that are ultimately prey animals. They're very skittish. They're very jumpy. They're very nervous. And the big favorite, the top five favorites, for all we know, they may leave their race on the track before the race even begins. They may be so unnerved by the crowd. Keep in mind that at a typical Saturday at the at racetracks across America, these horses are running in front of 10,000 people. So go from 10,000 people to 150,000 people is a big difference. That's one. Two is none of them has ever run this distance before in their life. A mile and a quarter. It's the longest distance. It's hard sometimes to fully project who's going to really want to go that far. That's a second element that makes it a bit chaotic. And the third element, and perhaps the most important, is with 20 horses on the racetrack. It's a cavalry charge. It's a stampede. And many, many times the best horse will be compromised by a bad trip. He'll get slammed into, he'll get stuck behind other horses, he'll find himself in situations he's never confronted before, and things can sort of lead to these bizarre long shots coming up and and out of nowhere and winning. So, you know, history just shows that, you know, if you were to ch- if there's a race to chase long shots, the Derby's not a bad one to chase. The other thing I would just say is if you were to sort of practically apply some of the value handicapping concepts to this race, I think you could look at it through two horses that I'd like to look at. Exaggerator, who's probably going to be the second favorite in the race, mm-hmm. and a horse named Gunrunner, who will be somewhere mid-pack in the betting. Now, Exaggerator, on the buyer's speed figure scale, got a huge number last time out in the Santa Anita Derby out in California. He got a 103 buyer, which if if memory serves me correct, is probably the, the highest last out buyer of any horse in the field. Gunrunner, on the other hand, has been running figures in the low 90s. And Exaggerator is going to probably be about 6 to 1, 8 to 1 as the second favorite. And Gunrunner is probably going to be in the 15 to 1 category. Now, the thing that, you know, to keep in mind now, that, that the reason why I, I would say these horses were probably, fair odds would probably have both of them closer to 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. So rather than Exaggerator being 8 to 1 and Gunrunner 15 to 1, I would say fair price would be 10 to 1 and 10 to 1. A couple of things play into that. Exaggerator's big figure in the Santa Anita Derby was largely created by the pace of the race. 
it turned he was 20 lengths off the leaders the leaders were flying early uh going way too fast they all absolutely knocked themselves out crawled home and he came flying from behind and because they had softened themselves up so much he was able to sort of just inhale them all and it looked very visually impressive he won by four or five lengths he got this huge speed figure and he's a nice horse and i'm not saying he can't win the race he certainly can but that race Hmm. on paper looks a lot better than it actually was any horse that's worth his salt that's sitting 20 lengths off of a torrid battle up front damn well better win the race so that's that's why that 103 buyer and that big win he had is going to inflate essentially inflate his appearance and attract more money than it should gunrunner on the other hand is a horse who's been only running middling poor buyer figures and people would look at that and sort of be driven away scared off having broken this horse down on film i can tell you I think forget about the speed figures. This horse is just a runner. He is tactical. He breaks well out of the gate. He sits nicely behind other horses and and does what we say he eats dirt. You know, horses, it doesn't come natural to them to sit, to to run behind other horses and have all that dirt and mud Mm. kicked into their eyes, their nose, their mouth. And it happens a lot in the Derby because it's such a big field. He does that very easily, very nicely. Doesn't seem to bother him at all. And he's just a horse that runs... Uh, very forwardly, really carries the jockey wherever he wants to go. And in these races, which he's been winning and producing low buyer figures, he's just been pulled out at the end. He's been traveling behind other horses, and he's been pulled out You know, as they head into the home stretch. And he goes by him, and the jockey then sort of wraps him up, and the race ends. And he may not be producing really big numbers, but I can tell visually watching him, you can tell this horse can run. David, this is awesome. I, I could uh, I could listen to you talk about this stuff for a long time, and now one th- one of my new life goals is I want to watch film with you sometime and um, see how you break all this down. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast, and I feel I feel smarter than I did uh, half an hour ago, or than I was half an hour ago, and I feel like if I were betting, I'd feel a little more confident. Excellent show. Doesn't mean you're going to make any. No, money. right, right, but. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll lose money feeling less stupid. Brilliant. All right. Thank you, David Papadopoulos. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And David, you're on Twitter, right? I am. El Greco. David El Greco? David El Greco. David El Greco. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back here next week. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work.